0: When you think about all the division in the world today, what remedies come to mind? What if a possible unifying force was music?
1: Art forms, especially music, is just a unifying thing. So if you start there, we start with something that we all like. I think it can go really, really far.
0: Welcome to Belonging and Becoming, a podcast from Asbury University. Each month, we'll share an interview with an Asbury graduate whose life reminds us of the incredible ways God is at work. Today we welcome Dr. Sean Opebolo from the class of 2003. He's an award-winning composer whose performances have taken him to Carnegie Hall, the Kennedy Center, and the National Cathedral. Dr. Opebolo is also a professor of music composition and theory at Wheaton College. He was interviewed via a digital internet connection by Asbury University President, Dr. Kevin Brown. There are a few minor technical transmission issues, but Dr. Opebolo's passion for music and life comes through loud and clear. The interview begins with a playful reference by Dr. Brown to current Asbury music professor Nathan Miller.
2: I first and foremost want to give you permission to share any stories that may come to mind about your roommate years at Asbury with Dr. Nathan Miller. So our audience would love to hear those.
1: Well, it's funny because <laughs> Nathan is uh, two years younger than I am. And so I was best friends with his older brother, Andy. I knew Andy longer than I, than I knew um, uh, Nathan. In fact, I knew Nathan. Nathan was like the annoying little brother. And, and, <laughs> and, 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 and that's how I viewed Nathan as the annoying little brother. But when I graduated and went to a Cincinnati Conservatory to start my uh, master's, he came two years later when I was talking my doctorate there and we became roommates. So this guy, this kid, who I'm thinking is just, again, my good friend's annoying little brother is now my roommate. We became really, really good friends. Um, uh, and I talk to him at least once a week. And we have a really close friendship. Our lives are very similar. We have two daughters. We're both professors, uh, both musicians. Both are part of the Cybersternary Church. So it's just one of those things where I would have never thought that my relationship with Nathan would become so close.
2: Yes, yes. Well, we love the Millers, and Nathan obviously chooses good friends. I would love to hear from you just your love for composing and how that developed early on, even prior to your time at Asbury.
1: So, you know, my family went to the Salvation Army Church when I was about seven years old. The Salvation Army has a strong music tradition. So early on, you know, my sisters and me, they gave us horns to play. We sing in the choir. And it's more natural for me. And I I just, I became good at it. But I would rather create than perform. And I would write these little melodies, these little arrangements. I had much more fun doing that. My passion, I I think, grew out of that. But because I was at the Cyber Assembly Church, I was with world-class musicians like Drs. Ron and B. Holtz, who taught at Asbury for a long time, and James Curnow, a world-renowned composer, who taught at Asbury also. So I had these great musical influences at my church. And so around age 13 or 14, I actually started studying privately uh, composition uh, with James Kerno, which is just a huge blessing. I mean, I was a poor kid from the projects. I had a good life. My mom is a saint and my sisters are, are great. But we didn't have the means to just have private lessons. So we had people at the church pretty much give me free world-class instruction. So I tell people, this is true, my music education came to the Salvation Army Church. I had free lessons at the Salvation Army and and that's why I'm here today.
2: What you studied at Asbury, composition and music history, was that a foregone conclusion when you stepped on campus or was that something that developed early on at your time at college?
1: When I was um, 11 years old, a person at my church, she said, you know, uh, Sean, what do you want to be when you grow up? Savashami minister, no, said, I want to be a composer. And, and she actually laughed. Now, that's a ridiculous answer from an 11-year-old. But I've always known I wanted to be a composer. And again, I had this strong foundation, studying with Jim Curno and the Holtz's, that it just seemed natural. Like, I like a lot of things, but it's almost like, well, that's what I do. And so um, from day one, I, I wanted to study composition. Uh, the music history came a little bit later. I was more into film music back then, not so much now. And so part of my musicology thesis was to study a film composer. And so that was, that was one of the reasons why I did music history. But it's pretty much from day one. Um, I was studying music and wanted to be a composer.
2: And I, I want to hear about your, your post-Asbury career, but something I love to share with prospective students and parents is to say Asbury is your story of belonging and becoming I wonder if you could even just speak to that a little bit. Your own story of belonging—you've spoken to that with Professor Kerno uh, as well as others. How did that time shape and form you, or even transform you after Asbury?
1: Oh, that's a really good question, and I can answer that several different ways. Asbury College, and yeah, I know you Asbury University now, mm-hmm. but is <laughs> a place of community. Okay. So um, instantly, I was a part of the Salvation Army Student Fellowship, which was an incredible community. And because I lived in Lexington, Kentucky, I played with the SASF band since age 14 or 15 years old. So I was already connected. And so I honestly thought the SASF would be my my only home. And it was a big part of my time there. But Asbury being just a close community, it's amazing the lifelong friendships you create when you're there and that was a huge part of my formation just on my hall alone um three of my best friends actually that's not even true four five of my you know best <laughs> friends or you know uh were on my hall that i still talk to today i had two best men in my wedding and those were uh, guys that i met at asbury and uh, we still are close we literally live on different parts of the country but um there's some accountability i have with these guys it's good to you know talk about our families and to grow in this brotherhood that developed and was cultivated while I was at Asbury. So musically speaking, the idea of being at a liberal arts college is, I think, in many ways priceless. I'm a better composer because I studied psychology, theology, literature, philosophy, math. I'm convinced I'm a stronger composer because of that. And then uh, on top of that, you have the spiritual component, which for me, you know, I grew up in the church and I would consider myself a, a strong uh, a Christian, but I feel like going to Asbury really solidified that. I needed that as a 18, 19 year old to have that strong uh, faith component that will inform in my, the rest of my life, even, even today. One thing that I should also add too, which was hugely part of my story um, and who I am today is um, when I was a junior in college at Asbury, one of my good friends um, passed away. This wasn't a guy that I just met at Asbury, I knew him before Asbury, uh, part of the Salvation Army Church. He passed away in a car accident, and that was devastating on so many levels. Like, how could this even be possible? And he was like, he was like the good one in the hall. He was a saint. We were all bad. I can't, I won't get into, into those <laughs> stories. But he he was so amazing and he passed away. And to see the community come around me, even at the hospital, seeing at that time it was Dr. Rader was president, even you know, coming to the hospital, just see that community rally around me. If that happened at another institution, what support would I have? That was a hugely important moment in my time at Asbury that I can't take for granted. So,
2: Well said. I'll just say really quickly, Dr. Troyer is our Advancement Vice President, and he and I travel a lot. We meet a lot of different people, different backgrounds, different ages, different ethnicities. What is amazing to me is how consistent the Asbury story is across such a broad variation of alumni, and it speaks to exactly what you're describing, a very deliberate, intentional, covenantal community where men and women are investing in the lives of students, and it makes a difference. Thank you for sharing that, and it's exciting to hear these stories that, again, are are consistent with so much else of what I hear. I'd love to talk some about your career Our alumni, folks who are familiar with Asbury, our listeners know that Dr. Pevelo is a widely sought after and award-winning composer. I'm curious, can you recall when you first began to gain
1: recognition for your work? That's a good question. So when I was at Asbury, the beautiful part, too, about my music experience there is because it was a smaller department, I had more one-on-one personal opportunities that I think helped propel my craft and career more as as opposed to going to a bigger school where I was one of many. Uh, One example, and it could be one of the defining moments that kind of launched my career, was while I was at Asbury, I was accepted into a composer mentor program where I had to write a uh, symphonic work for the United States Army Field Band, one of the big DC military bands. Phenomenal musician, so I can literally write what I want to write, and so I did that, and the piece exploded. And because of that, um, it was published. It was recorded by a uh, band in Belgium, a fantastic band in Belgium, and I was able to get you know commissions and other um, opportunities from that piece. And I will say that was probably one of the 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 moments early on that they kind of launched my career because even in grad school. I had this publication, I had a performance by a professional ensemble, um, and again, that started at Asbury.
2: Wow. I could not imagine producing something like that and then hearing it played by professionals throughout the world. It It was
1: really, really, really incredible.
2: Well, I admittedly am a pretty big geek, and, and I enjoy a lot of these old black and white anthology series like Twilight Zone and The Outer Limits. R- related to the outer limits, there's an author named Reba Wisner. She's written a book called We Will Control All That You Hear The Outer Limits and the Oral Imagination. And I've always been struck by that title. And just to be opportunistic, given your background and your expertise, what does it mean to have an aural imagination?
1: That's pretty much all my imagination is, pretty much. <laughs> um, um, well, I'll take that back. Uh, I'm a, a, a very visual person too, but I think art. I think music, uh, whether it's visual or musical arts or even poetry. That's where my imagination runs wild. And because I think that's where my imagination goes to first, it just informs my creativity even more. If there is, for example something difficult, whether it's a justice issue or something, you know, sometimes my first instinct is to write a haiku or it's almost always my instinct to respond to different matters, good or bad through music. You know, as far as my musical craft, when I compose music, it's like, what sound What color can I create? What timbre, what new sound can I create? And and that all ties into this aural imagination, but that's more just my being, you know?
2: I just wrote that quote down. I think art. I I love that. One of the things, when, when people ask me about college students today, and you're a professor, the characteristics that I share, among many others, is they are not a propositional group. If you try to make a propositional argument to today's 20-year-old, you've lost them. This has implications, I think, for how we bear witness to our faith. There's a, a British theologian, Alison Milbank, and she argues for what she calls imaginative apologetics. And in a Mars Hill talk on this, she said the performance is the argument. In other words, the piece of poetry, the artistic painting, the literature, the music, the composition, that is the argument. I would love to hear your response to that. Is that a viable way, given what you've said, for us to think about how we bear witness to Jesus Christ, how we bear witness to the message of Christianity in an age that is less geared towards propositional arguments?
1: Yeah, for one thing, it's something that unifies us, right? I'm talking about even cross-culturally. Like, Who do you know that hates music? Like, just like everyone likes music. Now we have like we like different types of music, but I I don't know anyone in any culture that says, ah, I don't like music. You can even say that about other art forms. You know, you know there there are people that may not care to go to an art gallery, but I'm sure they like beautiful things, visual things. And so, I guess I would start with the fact that. Art forms, especially music, is just a unifying thing. So, we, if you start there, we we start with something that we all like. I think it can go really, really far, you know. And to be honest with you, like some of my music that I write, they they deal with very tough issues. But I write it in a way I think it can resonate with many different people. And so we're forced to at least think about these you know issues. But I may not be able to reach a certain group or population. By just a Facebook post, but a, um, some sort of artistic expression, I think it could be more easily done.
2: Your composition, to Black Churches, puts music to literature, to poems that relate to specific instances of racial violence against Black churches. What is the power of adding music to that, and how might our oral imagination lead us to conceptualize these tragedies in new ways through the composition?
1: Yeah, so... First of all, I should say adding music to poetry doesn't necessarily make the poetry better. Poetry is often strong and it can stand alone, but it creates something different. There are lots of people, again, who will not necessarily read a poem or read about an uncomfortable encounter, but they'll listen to music. And adding that text brings a snapshot in history or an important topic to life in a way that can connect to certain people. My two black churches, that piece was very special because it was in response to a, uh, shooting of an unarmed black man. And so I was doing an interview about this piece with, uh, with the commissioner who was also the performer. And they asked us how this piece came about. And we could not remember which shooting prompted this piece because there's been many. And even the idea of shooting an unarmed black man creates controversy, but. When I wrote this piece, there are people who have different viewpoints than I do. They don't see injustice the way I do. They can't feel injustice the way I do. I listened to this piece, and they have messaged me, and they've said, "Wow, this is powerful. This is powerful." Bringing these tough matters, these issues to life through an art form that they can connect to more, I think it opens this window that's sometimes close to some people. And
2: maybe that's a part of what Milbank was arguing. Your performance was your argument. And people respond to that argument in ways that they may not otherwise. That's fascinating. I want to turn some attention to your professor at Wheaton. And I just want to hear about your job as a professor. What do you love about teaching and teaching students, seeing yourself and these students? I'd love to just hear you speak to that.
1: Well, uh, first of all, uh, one of my favorite places to be is in the classroom. I love it. Uh, Engaging with students who I believe get smarter and smarter and smarter every year. They ask great questions. They want to learn and they challenge me. I mean, they make me a better teacher. I learned so much from them. Now, this generation is a generation that's more open to talk about things, um, which I love. I've seen a shift with that. So I just love, love being in the classroom. But it's funny. I had this like, crisis is a, is a strong word, but this was last year before the pandemic. And I had this moment, like, what am I doing? Is what I'm teaching that important? Teaching the German Augmented sixth Chord or this special chord, or Is it that important when you have this, 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 this happening in the world? And, and I was really convicted by it for a while. And as I was struggling with the things that I'm teaching in class and its value, I realized it doesn't really matter what you study in college. I mean, it matters in terms of vocation and, th- and certain skills, but it's, it's just learning how to think. And so when a student comes to my office hours and they're dealing with issues that's not music-related... Crisis of doubt in terms of their faith, or other issues, mental health, or or even vocation that's beyond music that can speak into their lives, and I can be one person that can give my perspective to me. That's like that's why I'm here. That is why I'm teaching the German augmented six chord so I can speak into the lives of these students. And I reflect on my time when I was so focused on music and getting good grades, and while that was probably My main focus is all really all I cared about. I can just reflect in hindsight all the people who spoke into my lives, you know, professors, you know, like a Victor Hamilton that I didn't know they were speaking to my life because I was so focused on you know writing music and being a musician and so forth. So being um, a professor to me is, I think, it's like the greatest thing because not only do I get to do music and teach music and create music and and help students become better musicians, but I can speak into their lives in ways uh, that uh, I I wouldn't have an opportunity to if I were another profession.
2: Amen. Couldn't agree more. Dr. Walker and I have had some great discussions about the future of higher education, Christian education, liberal arts education. I would love to be opportunistic given your background and your current profession, and even your comments you've just made. You talked earlier about liberal arts college experience and how priceless that was. And you even said it made me a better composer in a time where there certainly is an instrumental appraisal. And what I mean by that is college is viewed or universities are viewed. What's the investment that's made up front? And then what do I get on the backside of it? How would you argue for a liberal arts education to today's prospective
1: student or their parent? I'll talk about the practical aspect first. First of all, there are only a few degrees you can get that your degree pretty much dictates your career. That's maybe nursing or education, like a K-12 education. Any other degree, I mean, people major in business, okay, you're going to major in business, but do what? Anything. You're a major in biology. You could go to medical school or you could go to law school for the biology degree. And so often, which I understand, we tie undergraduate education to a specific vocation when I don't know if that's fair. And in fact, it's kind of a fraud if you do that. If you sell a major for a specific vocation, then you it's almost like you're, you're being fraudulent. <laughs> Because, uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily going to be be that, you know, a specific job, you know. Now, I realize there's a um, a privilege in saying this. Not everyone can just afford a liberal education. Some of the best ways to educate, you know, young minds, especially young minds that are so diverse and so into so many things. They have access to so many things at the, at the click of a button. Why not try to just in these formative years between 18 and 22, flood them with just knowledge. They can have a specific major that would teach them a specific skill, but like you need to be a good writer no matter what profession you do. You need to be a good thinker, be able to argue properly. And as someone who's a Christian, I think integrate faith in a way that informs your vocation. You need the tools to do that. you Um, You need to understand science. You need to understand, you know, Politics, how politics works, especially in a time when we're very, very divisive, you know? So I'm just, I just, I should be on the commercial for the whole liberal arts education. I just, I, I should, because I just think this is the time to do it. Be able to expand your mind in ways that helps you become more of a, you know, I like the term you global citizen, you know, just understanding, you know, the world more. I appreciate
2: everything about that comment. But one thing in particular, it's interesting listening to the radio or or the news you'll hear things like today only 42% of graduates are working in a field that matches their major and that's presented with a connotation of like there's a bait and switch or the school failed to prepare that student to effectively integrate into their field i suppose that's an interpretation a narrow one i hear that and i say well perhaps it's because the institution has educated the student in a way that has made them flexible to work across a broad variety of fields and vocations. They're learning how to learn, and they have these enduring qualities that you just spoke to. They're critical thinkers. They're excellent writers. They can communicate Mm -hmm. effectively. They solve problems. They're creative. They have great judgment and decision-making. And these enduring skills outlast the dynamism of today's marketplace and allow students to move in and out of different spheres of vocation and not, as you said, be limited to one. So I join you in that liberal arts (laughs) advertisement. Yeah.
1: Um, I always get this from parents, not students. You know, what can my child do with a music composition degree? And I'll just say what my students have done or what they can do. I said, you know, uh, they can... Go to get your doctorate, be a professor, they can work on radio, they can be a film composer, uh, they can be a pilot, can be a lawyer, a doctor or a, a physician. I said, you know, I would guarantee you anyone, no matter what profession, they will say that their learning composition has formed their profession. The idea of maybe you know working in a particular way. these tools uh, will help them be successful in whatever whatever profession. I love that. Well, Sean, the excellence
2: of your work, both in teaching and composing, is a blessing to Asbury. And I want to thank you for that. And I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. This is fantastic. And just end by saying thank you for letting your light so shine to the glory of God.
1: Well, thanks for having me. And anyone who knows me, and now you you do too, you know that... uh, Asbury University, just, again, still hard for me to say. Uh, Asbury University is such a special and vital part of, it, it, it just shaped and formed me in, in, in a way that set up my life in a very uh, positive way. So I really appreciate my time at Asbury. Again, some of my greatest memories are, are during my four years uh, there in Johnson Hall.
0: That concludes today's interview. If you'd like to hear an additional excerpt from our discussion with Dr. Opebolo check out the episode 10 bonus recording. And if you'd like to learn about Dr. Opebolo or see some of his work, you can find that at www.shawnopebelo.com. And that name is spelled S-H-A-W-N-O-K-P-E-B-H-O-L-O. We want to invite you to join us again in two weeks for our next episode in which Dr. Brown and Asbury Professor Tom McCall discuss Wesleyan theology and why it still matters today. That's next time on Belonging and Becoming, a production of Asbury University. If you have any feedback or suggestions, please write us at belong at asbury.edu. We leave you now with a portion from Dr. Opebolo's Kutumbia Kivumbi, or Stop the Dust, which was inspired by a visit to the Akamba people of Kenya.